Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month, two new farmers share their experience of getting land through the Ecological Land Cooperative and tell us why having a stake in their land is so crucial. Then, we hear from a farmer on a small Scottish island about moving from conventional agriculture to a more holistic way of farming and making a living from marginal land. We learn how a simple system of nurturing chopped down trees back to life is restoring soils and supporting rural communities in Uganda. And, finally, a naturalist shares his research into insect migrations and tells us why they're so important to agriculture. We're excited to say that this month's episode is supported by Treedom, a platform that makes it easy to support a farmer in Africa and South America to plant a tree. Treedom isn't just planting any old tree. When you buy a tree with Treedom, you're actually financing farmers who want to plant trees as part of a small agroforestry system. And you're providing the local know-how and support to ensure those trees have the best start in life and truly benefit the farmers, the community, and the soil. Once you buy a tree with Treedom, you can also follow the tree's journey online it, it really is very cool. So Treedom have planted over a million trees since they started in 2010, and they've recently just launched in the UK, so it's definitely worth checking them out. Sinead Fenton and Adam Smith are the couple behind Awside Farm in East Sussex. Before they took it over, their four and a half acre plot was used to grow conventional maize. Now, Sinead and Adam are producing organic heritage veg, fruit and herbs, as well as beautiful edible and cut flowers. Neither of them comes from a farming background, and they've been able to access the land thanks to the Ecological Land Cooperative. The ELC buys land in England and Wales and makes it available for small, low-impact ecological farms. What's more, they secure planning permission so that farmers can build sustainable homes on-site. The ELC retains the freehold on each smallholding to make sure it's protected for affordable agricultural and ecological use, now and forever. So we, we started off on allotment site in uh, Redbridge in East London. We've had no experience within farming whatsoever, or even growing or gardening, like any anything of that kind of sort. I grew a bean once and that was basically about it. It started off as just a bit of a hobby. Like we'd, we'd be doing that for maybe about a year without really, I mean, we, we wasn't selling it, it was just a hobby. And then then as we started putting some stuff online of what we was growing, we, we started getting quite a, a bit of contacting from like different people, like lots of chefs asking like, how do we get hold of your product? We, we didn't really know, never really even considered this as like a, it's like, I guess it's like a, career yeah we, we decided just to start sending to these these chefs around and then like it kind of just grew from that i guess like within london there's quite like a close network of uh, uh small restaurants so i guess one would go to the other i've got this stuff from so and so and then you kind of just grow that way yeah it just kind of grew with us not really knowing what we were doing and just like completely winging it which i don't know probably say we still are a little bit now but yeah, I guess it was like we never really intended to do this. We just like we just knew that we wanted to be outdoors. We knew that we wanted to do something that was a bit closer to nature, and that we were kind of both rethinking, like 
kind of an office-based life and and yeah just kind of ended up organically I guess like falling into it um and just learning as we go we're still learning we're still making like a ridiculous amount of mistakes but learning from them as we go where we were growing um like we didn't have a contract we didn't have a tenancy so with that we had no security and what why would you put kind of your investment and your heart into something knowing that it could just be taken away from you at any moment and there was kind of like some talks that were maybe making us think that that was kind of the way that things were going to head but this is like this is such a rife issue within like cities in particular of like people growing in community gardens or with social enterprises or small growing projects that they're all on borrowed land and they're all on unsecure land and it's just it's just not fair that if there's a generation of farmers and growers that are you know the kind of older demographic that we often talk about who own the land and have that security it's just not fair that we don't get that as well but we were at the oxford real farming conference and this was where we met the elc but a talk that we went to before there was a young person talking about the want for like land and to be able to own the land and a farmer who was a lot older than uh, owned land and had said like I don't know why you guys are all so hung up on owning land and it's just like just how dare you like it's that security that that we're after that knowing that we can put our energy into something like working with the land it's not just a you know oh, I'm going to get set up in like a couple of months and it's all good to go it's you know it takes time it takes years it takes a lot of energy and effort for not a lot of financial reward but you know a lot of like inner reward so that was really important for us to like get that security um and to know that like the place that we were working on and the place that we were putting our hearts into wasn't just going to be taken away from us yeah so then like the dlts were kind of like a the lifeline like uh we we went to one of their talks and they explained the whole setup about access to land doing all like the legal legwork etc we went to the talk twice because we didn't believe it the first time yeah it's a bit of a it's a bit of a surprise to find out there is actually an option out there because again like i remember another one of the talks we went to there there's there was a young person speaking about how they got into farming and we at first we thought that was the talk to pay attention to but it just turned out they inherited the land from their parents so it's kind of like <laughs> It was a very inspirational, that one. But yeah, the, the LC one of saying like, they run this scheme where they buy portions of land, split into like affordable uh, sizes. And then, um, yeah, yeah, I guess we didn't just took it on from them and started getting in touch with the LC and then, uh, yeah, ended up here. Yeah. And like, we just never thought that it would really be an option for us. Like when we had kind of come to terms that like the social enterprise we were running had had no future and that we had to leave it like our plan was just you know right well we're going to have to go back into office jobs we're going to have to try and like earn as much money as we can so then maybe we can try and buy either a small patch of land and live near it because there's no way that we're going to buy a piece of land that actually has a house on it so yeah like it's just an incredible thing that the ELC are doing in like opening up land for people that come from backgrounds that just don't have the luxury of inheriting it yeah, so the relationship between us and the LC is really good. It's very personal there, and they're involved enough from a like looking out for us perspective, yeah. but not from a 
they're watching over us. They feel um, like our aunties and uncles. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they were more more interested in our well-being during this time rather than, you know, like the actual farming side of it, which was nice. Yeah, and took a lot of pressure off of it. But and I, I think that's, like, it, it's really nice to know that we have someone, like, looking out for us, uh, particularly, you know, we don't come from farming backgrounds. We don't come from countryside or rural backgrounds. Like we don't really understand how things work out here. It's a very different way of living. There's a very different kind of, I guess, culture. Um, there's different politics. We just don't really know how to like navigate with that. We've probably come in a little bit naive with like our London ways and Essex ways of just like, but yeah, knowing that we have like ELC that have our back that can help us with like what our rights are here and what we are allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do and like kind of some of the law stuff that we just don't have any clue about and it's all incredibly scary but to know that we can reach out to them and ask them those questions is like we feel like we're in a really fortunate position you know if we had gone and done this on our own would have I, I just realistically I just don't really think we would have been able to because when, when we'd moved here or when we got our caravan we were supposed to get it put in place in December and then it just rained every single day from like November. But then that just held us up quite a lot in terms of being able to move here. So we didn't actually get like our home moved until I think it was like mid-February because the ground was just so wet and so ridiculous. So I think that just held us back quite a lot. Um, yeah, it, it, I guess it meant that we, we couldn't just stay here. So it meant like having to come from London each time yeah, I mean, I'd say despite all of like those earlier struggles, like we we were still enjoying it, and I think it kind of like just like was like confirming that we've made the right choice to escape the city office office life. Like I, I guess like if you if you used to work in an office and have a real struggle rubbish kind of day, you get home and you, you don't really feel rewarded from it. Whereas mm-hmm. this like you, you struggle and it's a pain at the time but once you've done it you you kind of I don't know that that kind of like self-worth you kind of like look at it and you you kind of feel more proud of what you're doing yeah, like it's, it's a lot more of like a visual reward with this kind of lifestyle just reminding yourself that like you can do it and like like we are we are like capable and we are able of doing it and I think for me like as well that like I spoke about it before but like I suffer with like quite a lot of like anxiety and depression and like I second guess myself a lot whether I can actually do stuff and put myself down a lot whereas I think being here and like doing stuff and getting on with stuff like I'm building up a bit more like resilience and like belief in like what I can do and I'd, I'd say the same for like for you as well like I think we're both kind of feeling like we can <laughs> feeling like we we can do more and like, yeah, just believe it in ourselves. And I, I mean, I still have my moments where I have a meltdown, um, but, but they're less frequent. Um, and hopefully they'll just keep on going in that trajectory of, yeah, knowing that like we are, we are doing all right. Like we both were just a bit like, what is the point in just most things that we were like doing? Like some of the jobs I used to work in, I was like, is this actually like helping the world or is it just like, just not um and like 
yeah, I think we both just felt like that. Like we just didn't really have any like sense of meaning or like purpose for like being here and like changing the landscape for the better. Just like there's there's just so much like reward in that. So much like I I don't know if the right word is humble. Uh, probably not. But it just it just feels really good and like just the things that we've seen with like seeing insects popping up and like the butterflies that are all in the long grasses and like seeing the birds that are coming on the beds and like that's just like it's just priceless like yeah it's just a really nice feeling. Over the next few years the ELC is creating several new sites for small ecological farms and there are plots available. They're on the hunt for passionate land workers and ecological entrepreneurs who are ready now or will be ready soon to build a growing business. If that sounds like you, then visit ecologicalland.coop to find out more. Roger Dixon Spain farms with his wife Jilly on Lismore, a 10 mile long island in the Inner Hebrides, just off the west coast of Scotland. Roger spent most of his life as a conventional farmer in Cambridgeshire, before a series of chance events led him to Lismore and to a radically different approach to farming. Here, Roger introduces us to the idea of holistic land management and explains how he and Jilly are creating a viable farm business on marginal land and preparing the ground for the next Roger generation of farmers. a lot of ground in his interview, so we'll also be releasing a longer version of this as a short, including more detail about what holistic land management means in practice. Do you want to just tell me where we are now? Well, we're on the island of Lismore. Lismore sits in the middle of the uh, seaward end of the Great Glen, about five miles northwest of Oban. It sits like a ship in between two masses of mainland Scotland, and it is one of the only bits of limestone in Scotland. It is, relatively speaking, a lot more fertile than the, the land on, on the mainland either side of us, but... You know, it's still marginal land. Um, most of the croft that we've got is is rock and hill. You know, good productive soil is not what we've got here. However, compared with the rest of Scotland, it's terrific. I spent my whole life in farming. Actually, came to Scotland thinking that I was never going to farm again. That was uh, 16 years ago. Industrial farming. Um, I, I wouldn't have called it that a few years ago. But I now realise that um, although I was very good at the job that I did, I got to the top of the ladder and then found out that it was against the wrong wall. Ten years ago, we were watching a film by Rebecca Hosking uh, called A Farm for the Future. This film was extraordinary, uh, 45 minutes, and it took as long as it took to watch the film to have my whole belief system completely reversed. At the end of the film, I believed none of what I'd spent my whole life believing. I'd been into ploughing the whole of my life, and I thought that was a necessary part of, um, of the business of growing food and managing land. So, oh dear, huge shock. But we immediately got into the business of researching this whole deal in depth, and we have met some extraordinary people around the world on this journey. And I can now say that I'm a holistic land manager. I'm a regenerative farmer. I'm really, really excited about what we're doing here. It's earth-shattering stuff, the realisation that as a species we've got it so horribly wrong. 
We got into looking at holistic management because we watched um, Alan Savory's TED Talk, which I found totally inspiring. He was saying that, um, you know, as a species, you know, we've always managed our, our lives in pretty much the same way uh, for time immemorial. But we're always firefighting. We're always dealing with today's challenge, today's problem. But what we haven't ever realised is that there are always unintended consequences that flow from something uh, that is dealt with in isolation rather than in the round. The whole of what you're dealing with has to be considered in whatever situation you find yourself in. And um, I know Alan's always saying that, you know, if, if the universe is a piece of string and you pull the string, everything moves. The H word actually has some, some connotations with people, which means long hair and sandals and flowers in your hair. But, you know, it's not that at all. What, what does it mean in practice? I think it's the depth of the thinking that goes into absolutely everything that we do now. Everything that we do here is contextual. So when we're making decisions here now, every decision that we make, whether it's our personal life, whether it's to do with the, with the farm, uh, the croft, whether it's to do with the lives of our children, all the challenges that we meet and the decisions we have to make have to be filtered through that settled, holistic context. I mean, Alan Savory has put together a decision-making framework uh, every decision is put through seven testing questions, but the whole thing is really filtered through this holistic context that we spent months and months and months writing down on paper. So, you know, really, really uh, thoughtfully designed view of where we're headed. And we're not, not talking five, ten years from now, talking 50, 100, 150 years from now. So that we're dealing with land and with a business that will will benefit people, you know, down the the generations in perpetuity if we get it right. So how many livestock have you got? Just now? Uh, we've got ten Highland cattle, ten Texel cross blackface hoggets. Uh, so in terms of livestock units, about twenty livestock units, something like that, because we have our animals out all year round. They're not housed. Uh, the winter time's a bit of a problem if we've got too many feet on the ground because it just make a horrible mess. Uh, on top of which, we recognise that the living that we would help other people to make here is not going to be based on, on cattle and sheep. They're a management tool. They make a profit. But realistically, we're not going to be making enough money to support somebody's living here if it's just cattle and sheep. So... How do you make a living off 74 acres on an island in Scotland without having to rely on subsidies and government handouts? That is the purpose of doing what we're doing because uh, other than um, returning land uh, soil to being healthy, learning to grow topsoil, learning to grow soil biology, sequestering carbon and uh, being able to show people that we have the answer to climate change, we also want to have the answer to a rural communities being able to support themselves financially without government help, because we're all going to have to do that at some point. And so if we can learn to do that, then we're going to be ahead of the curve and then we'll be able to teach other people to do the same. 
So how 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 are you going to make a living from this from other than from your um, It's likely to come from a mixture of of the animals that we've got at the moment because um, we supply our regular customers with meat and uh, they've been continuously asking us for chicken. Julie and I have uh, spent two and a half years getting ourselves to be qualified to slaughter chickens here. And Julie, on her own, got legislation rewritten to allow us to do that because we were told that we couldn't. The profitability of it looks really good. We would be um, producing pasture-raised chicken, pasture-raised eggs. The rest of the income would come from education and a tourism offer. And it could be either tourism in the sense that everybody knows um, tourism, in other words, people on holiday, or it's going to be the business of educating people into this new way of looking at farming, land management and food production. Mm-hmm. And human health, animal health, the whole nine yards. Because once we start down this path, everything changes. Absolutely everything. My job, I, I guess, in the future, and that of my wife, Julie, will be... Uh, helping to educate people to know how to do what we're doing here and what the benefits are, but uh, also to help young people to get into farming, people who've never been in farming before. You know, farmers are so invested in, in what they've learned to do over a lifetime, they're you know, virtually impossible to persuade. So we're either looking for low-hanging fruit, those people who know there needs to be a change but don't know how, or young people who are open-minded enough to just come in and learn how to look after the land that we rely on as our base asset, as a species. Because if we muck that up, we're, we're toast. So, you know, Jilly and I are sitting here wanting to find a couple who want to come and live here. We personally don't want to be doing the work. We want to hand that on to somebody else. We want to be responsible for getting the message out there, helping them to educate themselves, being front men for people who visit here um, whilst they're learning their trade and just generally sort of enjoying the process because it's extraordinarily exciting. Prudence Ayabare is chair of the Ugandan network of Farmer Managed Natural Regeneration, FMNR. FMNR is an amazingly simple and low-cost approach to land restoration. It's designed to be used by subsistence farmers in particular. It involves regrowing indigenous trees and shrubs just from the tree stumps, root systems, and some seeds. The goal is to increase food and timber production while restoring soils and boosting environmental resilience and biodiversity. Farmers in at least 22 African countries are now using FMNR to regreen their land and reverse desertification. Prudence gave this talk at the Fixing the Future conference in Barcelona back in 2019. When all the trees are cut down, and when all the animals are dead, and when all the waters are poisoned, when all the air is unsafe to breathe, only then you will discover that you cannot eat the money. I found that very interesting, and I think it's very uh, good that we think about it. And of course, we are doing very many things, among which the main subject that I'll discuss about is FMNR. That is what we do sustainably, 
to grow the food that we eat. And uh, FMNR is just a simple approach and a simple technique that we use in a way that uh, we allow the indigenous trees and tree stumps to regenerate. We prune them and uh, we enable them to grow into the trees that we would like to see. And basically, this is having trees on farm, uh, which most of the times, most of the farmers are thinking about getting that smart farm. But we are talking about having trees on farm because that's the only way we can have trees exist. And then we also have our food grown in a proper manner that we can all coexist. So those are the simple illustrations. How we have cleared our farm. It is very clean as we see it. But with FMNR, we are saying give it a chance to regenerate. And when it regenerates, it's like that image three, we can get few shrubs, few thick grasses, few tree stumps trying to resurface. And when they resurface, we can manage to have some trees that can try growing. When we prune once, twice, and thrice, we can be able to get a few trees that can be nurtured into the nature of the trees that we would want to have. If we want for fuel as wood, it's available. If we want big trees for construction, it's also available. If we need any other kind of trees, it is available. And it's a technology that works mainly with our indigenous tree species. So those, the, uh, those men you see are trying to prune the trees so that we get those taller trees like you can see them there. So basically, FMNR is that, as I have indicated. And of course, we prune these regularly and regularly. So um, that is Tony. Tony is uh, a champion of FMNR. He's from Australia, and we work closely together. He got an award on right livelihood. FMNR was awarded as a right livelihood approach to sustainable development. So we believe it works. We have tested it. It is simple, it's low cost, it's sustainable, possible, and reversible to reverse the gear of the global warming that we have. Uh, we believe and we already know that we are in a changing atmosphere when we talk about seasons. Most of our farmers in Uganda have been used to planting in March and harvesting in June, July. But this time, even in May, it is not yet raining. So that means there is a lot that is going on in seasons. And I believe also with us, the seasons are changing. When we talk about increased pests due to global warming, they are increasing. We see new pests every day. And all those challenges that we see available, the changes, we have decline in, so, uh, in soil fertility and very many of those. But we come in as FMNR advocates, we come in as FMNR champions to say that we can use same simple techniques to be able to rehabilitate, to be able to increase our land productivity using a simple approach as I have talked about it uh, in the beginning. 
Comparing our statistics, we realized from one of the studies that we did in West Africa, you can use 40 US dollars to nurture the trees on farm per hectare with FMNR. Using and planting new trees, you need 8,000 US dollars on a farm, meaning FMNR is still cheaper. That is what we are saying. It's very easy to give an example, but it's very difficult to become one. Yes, we are here talking. We need to change. We need to work out something. We are giving examples, but what are we going to do ourselves? So I'm here to tell us that we can do something. Myself, when I learned about the simplicity of FMNR, I mobilized several farmers around the country, and we started practicing the FMNR network, uh, the, the FMNR networking, and practically we have rehabilitated several hectares of land in millions. So you that is here, what are you going to do? Are you going to start learning by doing, as we say, with the approach? I've been told, and it is a reality, that there is no school you go to learn riding a bicycle. If you want to ride a bicycle, you get on it, you ride it, you fall down, the next time you will ride it better. So we say that as FMNR, that we do not have to go to school and start doing everything. But we need to do to learn by doing. And with that, we will perfect it and perfect it and become Experts. So there are several benefits that we can get from FMNR. That is one of the honey products that we got from some of the farmers in Ofaka, that is West Nile region of Uganda, which we harvested from some FMNR farms and sites. Uh, we have fuel. In Uganda, most of our farmers use wood as fuel. Uh, we use it for construction purposes. Farmers are earning more from selling of the products from FMNR. Uh, from the simple illustrations, that is how a tree was cut. Some of the farmers do bush burning. I don't know if there is bush burning around from the farms. That is how the field may look like. But if you look in that corner, there is a shoot that is coming up. And that is what we need. And when the shoot grows to some level, we start planning. And in a twinkle of an eye, we have a great forest. <laughs> up is a picture before FMNR, and below is when FMNR had been done. That was taken in West Africa. So it is possible, it is reversible, we can do it together. That is a, a part of the team and the farmers that we work with. And uh, we are working with them in one of the projects where savo trees, a forest, a natural forest was cut down. And we are working with them to, to do FMNR in that place so that we can be able to regreen our landscape. So simply, we can reduce global warming with our FMNR approach. And of course, as the question suggests, 
How do you grow the food that we eat? FMNR simply we say it's sustainably grown. And we can also restore our landscapes, our creating a favorable microclimate, and several other elements that we can always talk about and talk about. Let's network to scale up this approach because it is possible. Uh, lastly, we have what we call the bond challenge. Our different countries have committed that by 2020, we need to have regreened 150 million hectares of trees. And by 2030, we need to have regreened with 250 million hectares. And of course, there is a lot of scratching of the heads. What can we do? How do we do it? How do we do it? And we are simply saying, it's about FMNR that we can do, simple, but we shall reach. Insects provide many of the services we rely on for our survival. They pollinate crops, control pests, and decompose waste. But they also have another side to their lives. A huge number of insects, from butterflies to beetles and dragonflies to moths, are migratory. Some of them travel thousands of kilometres every year. Now, research by the University of Exeter and other European universities is beginning to reveal the huge impact that insect migration has on agriculture across Europe, yet another reason why it's absolutely vital that we protect these remarkable creatures. Will Hawkes is part of the research team at the University of Exeter. My research looks at these tiny insects which um, travel such great distances around the globe. So, for example, we think some hoverflies will travel from the UK right down um, to the Mediterranean basin. I'm very lucky it takes me to the mountains of Europe to areas where they, they make their long pathways, long journeys down over there in the autumn. And then in the springtime, we go to Cyprus in order to catch the insects going back north again. And we do this research by uh, catching the insects in nets and then identifying them and then letting them go on their migration and then also counting them using a little video camera and as well as doing some more specific things so like we look at the their pollen so what flower flower pollen they're carrying the numbers of insects uh, which migrate seem to be really quite incredible considering that uh, you see the great arrivals of swifts and swallows um, into the UK, but you don't, uh, you don't always see these numbers of insects because um, they're often far too small to notice. So you might notice the uh, painted lady butterflies coming in on the red animals, and there's been some reports that had really big ears. But then uh, a lot of the insects that are migrating, we found them, we found during my PhD, the vast majority of the insects migrating are in fact flies. And that's a really, really exciting finding because that's very new. And um, it was so the effect that flies have um, could be massive on the ecosystem. And also, there are some little things like when we went to the Pyrenees, we expected to see the painted ladies and red admiral butterflies.
because they're the main migrants. But then we saw uh, tens of thousands of cabbage white butterflies going up over the passes. And that was quite interesting because everyone, well, at least I seem to think they were quite sedentary creatures. They stay in one place, but in fact, they seem to be moving such vast distances as well. And so the numbers of the insects also seems to be massive. So um, we were seeing, um, as I said, tens of thousands of these butterflies. But when we went to Cyprus, we saw maybe millions of these painted lady butterflies coming into land. And then, but the flies were by far the most numerous. We had um, tens and tens of millions, like nearly 50 million flies making landfall across Cyprus. So there's been some published data on how many insects are moving around just southern England and using these amazing entomological radars, these insect radars, which fire a beam up into the sky and then they count the number of insects passing across this beam. And that research showed that in any given, an average year, three and a half trillion insects migrate across southern England, which is an incredible amount. And this has loads of uh, potential applications as well. So when we were in Cyprus, we saw many hoverflies crossing um, oceans covered in pollen. And this long distance pollen transfer is really, really important because it allows the gene flow um, between populations of plants, which although they're the same species are geographically isolated from each other. And because of these um, migratory insects, it allows these populations to be connected. This allows gene flow between them. And then also this gene flow increases the fitness of the, of the, the plant populations. If they're declining, a new gene could come and rescue them. And overall, it increases yield. And this is really important for farming, of course. So like crops, crops being hundreds of kilometers apart are actually connected. And the differences in genetic diversity or increasing genetic diversity of the pollen they receive. One of the main reasons for insect decline is habitat loss um, and also pesticides along with climate change. And they seem to be the three main things. And, and the habitat loss and pesticides seem to be quite easy fixes. And I think it's the farmers which are in the best position to do this. So by, uh, there is a few studies which looked at the benefits of wildflower strips on the edges of farms. And that um, is really important because this provides habitat for the for the, the insects, the beneficial insects. And it's not just pollination as well, it's things like pest control. And so another study that my supervisor, PhD supervisor, Carl Watson did was look at just two species of, of hoverfly. And he found in just Southern England, he found that they would eat 6 trillion aphids in a year, which is like 6,000 tons worth of aphids, which is an incredible amount. Two species of hoverflies eating what? is about 20% of the early spring population of aphids. And there are far, far more hoverflies which eat the aphids coming into the UK that are migratory. And so you see how important these insects are for, uh, for the agricultural industry as a whole. So having these wildflower strips along the edges of farms, and even there was an experiment, I think, showing that having wildflower strips in the center of fields as well was really, really useful because that just allows the insects to get to more of the crop. And so they can provide the pollination, provide the 
eating of the aphids as well, which seems very, very important. This episode of Farmarama was produced by Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, and myself, Abby Rose. We're really grateful to our Patreon supporters who make Farmarama possible. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com forward slash Farmarama. And next month we'll announce that we have some special treats for new Patreon members thanks to our supporters this month, Treatem. Thank you to Philip Revel, James Fryer, Phil Moore, and Atlas of the Future for recording a couple of the interviews featured in this episode. Community support for Farmarama is provided by Hannah Söderlund, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Thanks to Treatem for supporting this episode in particular. Um, and we're excited to be in conversation and work with many more farmers um, planting trees in agroforestry systems. Finally, we recently let you know that our serial series had been nominated for two Guild of Food Writers Awards in the podcast or broadcast and investigative categories. Well, we're delighted to say that we won both of them. Thank you so much to everyone who was involved with making and sharing the series and to everyone who's listened so far. If you haven't, you can find the series on our SoundCloud page 